Revelation chapter 2, the words will be on the screen behind me. Otherwise, there's a Bible in your seat back pocket for you to join us. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Father, I'm so thankful that you would deliver this message. I can only imagine when the pastor received this, thinking to himself, how will I deliver this one? And so I pray for the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. And I pray that the word would go forth with clarity, concise, and filled with the power of your Spirit. Lord, Use this word to move us. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you have your seat? Uh, I hope you have your journal with you. Our sermon series entitled, Can You Hear Me Now? You should have received one last week. If you didn't get one, make sure that you do. As we have uh, in there, many of you have written, uh, already read the letters that the elders of the church wrote to our church. Uh, kind of following suit in context. Now, we've already said that they're not inspired letters, but I was encouraged to hear uh, this week how um, you are reading those letters and have been encouraged and inspired and exhorted yourself. So maybe you want to take that journal out. Uh, The title of our message today is The Power of His Perspective. The Power of His Perspective. Who wants to receive this kind of letter? Better yet, just imagine when the pastor received this letter and he had to deliver this to his congregation. Who wants to receive this kind of word? It seems like it goes from bad to worse to prison to prison. I don't know if you know this about a Roman prison, but much different than our day and age of three meals a day and some rec time and maybe you get to work out if you gain some points or however the system may be that you might know in our 21st century, oh, first century, so much different. In fact, listen to a historian of the third century writing, its appearance is disgusting and vile by reason of the filth, the darkness, and the stench. Have you ever heard or read in the scriptures that Paul was cast into prison? Well, it truly was a measure that you were cast into for the prison that we have found. Oh, in Rome, it's a hole that you were cast into a pit of utter vileness and darkness. It was a place, oh, not where you would stay for years. You only went to prison if you were facing death. It was just a holding cell. 
It was a place that you were on your way to either the lion's den, the beasts of the stadium, or the gladiator's arena, or simply a quick execution if you were of some sort or from some family. Otherwise, oh no, you weren't held in prison. It was more like a house arrest, like Paul was as well. I know these prisons well. Um, I will never forget, while in Liberia, um, there were some robbers that kind of came to our house and they had dug a hole underneath our garage and they were trying to get in. Had it not been for a rat that jumped on my wife and my wife screamed, these robbers would have gotten in. So God uses even rats to get our attention, right? So rats have been redeemed in our, our heart. Well, after they were arrested, I went to the prison with two of my friends to go and visit them. And truly and surely, it was just like a Roman first century world. It was a hole with a little door that had a lock on it, and you had to go down like this into the hole. Well, I felt pretty confident. I had two of my friends with me, and so I went down into that hole, and we were down in there, and I'm talking to the robbers, and I said, hey, listen, we would love for you to come to our house between the hours of 8 a.m. and 9 p.m. When you come at 3 a.m., we think that you're trying to hurt us. Thus, you're in jail. One of the guys, literally, while I'm talking to him, he just went to the bathroom, like right in front of me. I mean, and you can't even really stand. The stench is so overwhelming, but I'm feeling pretty confident. Got two of my friends with me, and I'm telling them that they need Jesus because it looks like their time is coming to an end. And I turn to one of my friends who's yesing me and amening me, and I say to my friend, Yes, tell them about the truth of Jesus. Well, my friends were yesterday menning me outside the door through the little hole that was in the window. I was the only one in the jail with them when I thought I was with my two friends. So immediately I said to them, hey, listen, if you don't know Jesus, you're going to hell. I need to go. You know, just kind of walked out at that point. But this place, none of you would want to spend even three minutes there. This pastor's got to deliver this message. (laughs) If you think that's bad. You think that's bad enough? The end of this message, he says you're going to die. Wait a second. Wait a second. Are you sure this letter is from Jesus? I can imagine the pastor now, and maybe the pastor was praying like I was praying this week in having to teach this letter. Lord, is this letter really from you? Did you write this kind of letter to this church? I can only imagine the pastor that had to proclaim this to the church in Smyrna. Is this Jesus? Oh, it's the same Jesus. It's the same Jesus that would tell the church, you have to lose your life in order to find it. The same Jesus that would say, don't be afraid, in Matthew chapter 10, of those who can kill the body. It's the same Jesus who would face his own suffering. The same Jesus that would die on a cross and be buried. It's the same Jesus that rose again on the third day. It's this Jesus, that strong athlete of Jesus, who knows that in order to taste victory, you will have to taste suffering. It's Jesus. Jesus. Jesus, the Lamb of God, who would conquer the world. The Lamb of God. Take a look at this precious picture. The Lamb of God who would conquer the world? He's a smiling little lamb. We raised a lamb when we lived in the Bahamas. We called him Rambo. 
after Jesus. Excuse me, Lambo, after Jesus. We figure he's a lamb, kind of like Rambo, Lambo. You know? And this little lamb was so precious. He lived in our home, and everywhere that Selah went, the lamb was sure to go. I mean, Selah just loved this precious little lamb. But you don't look at this smiling little picture and go, conqueror of the known world? Conqueror and victorious king? I don't know if you know this, but when a wolf comes on a lamb, the lamb goes on the offensive. The lamb just takes a look at that wolf and with every bit of power and strength that it has, it goes like this. Bah. And then when it really gets ferocious, do you know what it does? It rolls over and plays dead. That's what a lamb does. That's its defense mechanism. No wonder all sheep need a shepherd. A lamb who conquers? This is the paradox of heaven. This is the, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. This is if you want to be the greatest, you've got to be the slave of all. This is humble yourself to be exalted. These are the paradoxes of heaven. You see, God sees things a little bit different than we do. He, he's got a different perspective, so he sees a lamb as a conqueror. And maybe it would be good for us to set our minds on his perspective. Listen, I want you to write it down because there is power in his perspective, especially with the paradoxes of heaven. Take a look how he introduces himself in this letter. He describes himself as the first and the last. Now, flip over a page to Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. John, who's coming in contact with Jesus for the first time, he's afraid. So afraid, look what happens in Revelation 1, 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. The first and the last. The Holy Spirit saw fit to tell John, who was afraid, I'm the first and the last. And now the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, tells this church who's about to go through great trial, I'm the first and the last. And if the Holy Spirit repeats something twice, there must be a message for us. He's saying, I was there at the beginning, and I have planned straight through to the end. I want you to write it down. It's our first point. Jesus is in control. He's in absolute control. And to prove his sovereignty, he says, I was dead and then I was alive. I rose from the dead, proving that I am the first and I am the last. Proving that I am in absolute control. And that's a great message for those that are about to enter chaos. That's a great message for those who are about to go through the greatest trial and tribulation of their life, that Christ is in control. Now, maybe let's go back for just a moment because sometimes I think we don't understand why Jesus is giving this message. Let's go all the way back to Jerusalem. Do you remember when Jesus was being crucified? Who did it look like was in control? Well, Pontius Pilate, the Romans. Maybe even the Jews who had turned the Romans against Jesus. And it looked as Jesus was going up the Via Dolorosa. It didn't look like Jesus was in control. 
It looked like the Jews and the Romans were in control when he was hanging there on that cross, when he was pinned by three nails. It looked when he died that God was completely out of control in the midst of this chaos. But that is so far from the truth. No, God was in complete control. And he was using the circumstance, he was using the Jews and using the Romans to bring about our greatest deliverance, victory, that we could have eternal life. Uh, my family and I, we, we like playing games, but not like board games. We like ultimate frisbee, and we like like all these kind of games. Well, my daughter, Abigail, <laughs> um, I asked her for permission, and one time we were playing ultimate frisbee, and um, she was going for the frisbee, and we throw the frisbee to her, and we're, she's running like this to catch the frisbee with everything within her, and we're screaming, Abigail, Abigail, and she thought like we were motivating her. We were actually trying to warn her because she was running right for a tree. So we're like, Abby, Abby, and she keeps running, bam, falls down, and she's just like knocked out on the ground. Now, what we do when we're getting ready to play with other families, we place Abigail on their team. And I say to her, Abby, here's the deal. It's actually helping us that you're on their team. Like, you go on their team, and it's actually, you're, you're helping us. It's like, you're still on the low family side. You go on that team right now. I asked her for permission to share the story, but here's the truth of it. As the one in control of the low family, I know how to place my children in order for me to win. Someone just got it. Here's the deal. It didn't look like Jesus was in control until the third day when he rose from the dead. Think of the Christians in China. What a great message for the Christians in China. Where it was just revealed, the Chinese government has had a plan since 2012 where the evangelical world thought that the doors were being opened. It was only a trick. They needed to expose the underground church. And in 2012, they initiated a governmental plan to accept and embrace the church for two years. That was the first phase. The second phase was to slowly implement rules and regulations on the churches that came out. The third phase. Oh, the third phase over the last of the next eight to ten years, we see it actually happening. The third phase was now that we know who they are, now we can arrest them. Now we can oppose even more governmental, uh, uh, governmental restrictions on them. And I don't know if you know, but in the last two years, listen, there are the, the amount of persecution and the amount of Christians that have been in jail have increased 80% in two years. Their plan to get the church, is it working? God, where are you? I'm in jail. I don't know if you know this, that China executed more people, capital punishment, than any other, any other country in the world combined. And I read an article in Christianity Today, and the article was letting us know, emphasizing the fact that many of those that have been executed have had false crimes put on them, and they're Christians, and they're believers. Think of the message to those Chinese that are in jail, those that are suffering and being persecuted. Christ is in control. Stop for a minute and think of your own life. What a great message to hear when your life takes an unexpected turn that Christ is in control. What a great heart to know. Listen, this week, I get a call from my mom. It's my first cousin. Now, let me explain. 
It was two years ago, right before I came to this church, my cousin, she had a, a, a little boy, precious little boy named Ty, who was born with Down syndrome. He then got leukemia, he then got cancer, and he went home to be with the Lord at eight years old. And I got the call this week that her 11-year-old son found her dead on the kitchen floor. And now, this husband has lost his eight-year-old son and his wife within the course of two years. And when life enters that kind of chaos, what a message to the church. I'm in control. They're hearing the news. I was dead, but I'm alive. And what a great perspective for those that were about to face their eternity. They were going to die. The truth is, though, listen, we're all going to face that kind of eternity. This letter is important for us to read to gain the same kind of hope that they gained because Christ is truly in control. Now, for believers, the hope, oh, the hope of Jesus' death well, we have a Good Friday service and we have an Easter service. We, we know by celebrating Good Friday that there's going to be a resurrection. There's going to be an Easter and we are planning an incredible celebration because the death only points us to the resurrection. What hope for us as believers that when we die, we have hope that we're going to be with Jesus because of his sacrifice on the cross. What a hope. Because unbelievers... Unbelievers don't have that hope. And it's displayed in a culture that desires and wants everything and everyone around them to be nothing but young. Fear. The fear of death. The fear of facing that final chapter instead of faith. But gang, it's not just unbelievers. Let's be honest for just a moment. As believers, if you believe in Jesus Christ, let's just be honest for a moment because I think we have certain expectations when we get saved. We give our lives to Jesus. Everything will be okay. There's not gonna be any hangups. And well, you know, I'm gonna get the best job. I'm gonna get the best wife. I'm gonna have the best family. Everything's gonna go the way that it should. And if by chance something goes the wrong way, well, that's why we have prayer. So we pray, he fixes, it, he fixes it exactly according to what we think is best. Thank you, Jesus. Glory, hallelujah, amen. It's not the way life goes, is it? It's not the way this letter goes. Because he then goes on in this letter, he goes, you're poor. You're poor. Now this Greek word, you're poor, this Greek word means, no, you're really poor. No, like you are really, really, really poor. Now, this is a message in South Orange County that we definitely don't want to hear. Trust me, reading this letter, how can I as the past? You're poor. This is a message we don't want to understand, but it's a message to understand. Because Jesus said earlier in a very famous sermon, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So this message is very important to understand because he said you are poor, but yet you are rich. What are you talking about? Well, in order to understand this great spiritual blessing, you need to understand Smyrna. 
You see, Smyrna was one of the wealthiest cities in Asia Minor. There was a port. There was production. There were manufacturing companies. Everybody had a job. Everybody had money, in fact. When the Roman government wanted to put the Temple of Tiberias in Asia Minor, all of the cities bidded for it. They all asked, put it here, because they knew what it would do for their city. And Smyrna won it. And they won it because they knew, the Romans knew, that if it was in Smyrna, they would pour so much money into it that truly it would be a temple of Tiberias because everyone is wealthy there. Well, and the way you'd get a good job, oh, very simple. On the application form, there was a little checklist and you had to write, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. Well, that'd be very difficult for a Christian to say. How could a Christian say Caesar is Lord when Jesus is Lord? So I, I don't know if I can check that off on my application. But you see, there was one group in the entire Roman Empire that had an exemption of this. They were the Jews. They had given the Romans so much problem that they came to a compromise. And the compromise was, you don't have to say Caesar is Lord, but you can just say Caesar is king. You can just give him some kind of accolade, but you don't have to say that he is Lord. And the Jews were like, okay, we can do that. We're compromising anyway. We're the synagogue of Satan, so I get it. We, we'll compromise with you, but the church, church wouldn't compromise. But at this time that the letter was written, the church was in the synagogue. And so the Jews would say, they're not Jews. They're not worthy of the exemption. You need to kick them out. You need to put them in jail. You need to put them in prison because they're not Jews. And they slandered the Christians. Now you're a Christian. You can't check the box. You can't get a job. You, you, you lose your job and in one fell swoop, just like many Christians in China and Iran, you lose your bank account and get seized by the government. You lose your house, you lose your home, you lose your food, you lose your car, you lose everything in one moment and you better get out of the country because your life is dependent on it. These Christians in Smyrna, they had to survive. And despite the cost of poverty, they chose the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. They made the decision, we choose the kingdom. So to comfort them, oh, it's point number two, write it down. Jesus says to them, take a look with me if you would. It's Revelation chapter two. Look what he says in verse 10. Do not fear. Stop there if you would for just a moment. Do not fear. Over 200 times this command is given in scripture. Now, if the Holy Spirit repeats something twice, we know we should listen. But 200 times? C.S. Lewis, I really believe he understood this well. When he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, he wrote about Aslan, this God figure, trying to express Christianity through this story. Listen to a discussion between Susan and Mr. Beaver. Listen. Aslan is a lion? The lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. 
What was safe about God telling Moses, I want you to go to the leader of the known world and tell him you're going to take five million of his slaves in an evening? What was safe about Joshua going into the promised land and God says, you've got to fight for it? What was safe about Daniel who had to go to Nebuchadnezzar, his son and his grandson, and speak the truth, knowing that he'd be thrown into a lion's den or even into a fiery furnace. What was safe about Esther, who thought for sure that she would be dead in saving the Jewish people, but she was willing to give her life? What's safe? Of course it isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. He's the king. Do not fear, he says. You're about to suffer. Now, I want you to circle about to there in verse 10 because they haven't suffered yet. He's, well, he's expressing that he's in control. You see, he is giving them his divinity through his foreknowledge. They haven't suffered yet, and the Smyrnans are wondering, wait, 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 we're not suffering. We've got our jobs. Everything is good. We're not in jail. I mean, come on, this is all good, right? I mean, nothing's going on, but Jesus, expressing his divinity, is telling them what is about to happen, happen because the suffering comes about 40 years after this letter was written. Their pastor was a man by the name of Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of John the Apostle. And Polycarp, he made a stand against the Roman government. We will not say Caesar is Lord. Now remember, Jesus told them that they were about to suffer. And Polycarp said, I'm making a stand. 40 years after this later, letter, listen, we are not going to go the way of the world here. He had a dream. Polycarp had a dream. A historical book written by one of his disciples tells us the whole story that he dreamed that, well, his pillow caught on fire. And the next week he told his church, I'm going to die by burning at the stake. Well, only three days later, Roman soldiers pounding on his door, he invited them in. He said, gentlemen, would you give me an hour to pray? asking his wife to cook a meal for them. He went in his room and he prayed, and willingly, like a lamb to the slaughter, he went to the stadium. When questioned about his faith, listen to what he said. 86 years, 86 years I've been his servant, and he's done nothing to me wrong. How can I blaspheme my King Jesus who saved me? When his death sentence was finally proclaimed there in the stadium, listen to the historical statement, both Gentiles and Jews shouted that he'd be given to the beasts. But the beast had been outlawed in Rome, and so they burned him. They burned him at a stake. And before he died, he said, I must be burned alive. This was the pastor of Smyrna who made a stand. Church, let me express. How long will we as Christians stand? How long will we be complacent? Did you not read about the law in New York? Did you not hear what the governor of Virginia said? When will it be that our faith is no longer tolerated, that we stand against and we stand for life, that the world will say we've had enough? 
That the world will say, listen, you Christians, you're the cause of all of our problems. The way of the world is going like this. You have a problem. When will it happen that all those who live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted like Paul said? And how is this comforting? Do not fear you're about to suffer. How is this comforting? This reminds me when I used to teach swim lessons of little kids who would be coming to the pool and their mom would be saying to them, don't be afraid. They're about to jump in the pool and as far as they're concerned, I'm about to drown them. Well, this past summer, listen, I taught Zach's kids how to swim, Zach and Audrey, and it's Audrey's birthday today, so say happy birthday on the way. In fact, one, two, three, ready? One, two, three. So she's sitting right up here if you want to say it to her later, okay? Just, I'm totally embarrassing her right now. So Audrey would come to the pool with Simeon, and she would be telling Simeon, hey, Simeon, don't be afraid. Gogo is going to teach you how to swim. Now, Gogo's the name they call me. Uncle couldn't come out. We'll change it when they turn 16, okay? So uh, uh, don't, don't you be afraid. He's going to teach you how to swim. Well, when I took Simeon in the water, he was screaming. He was crying. All he thought was, you're going to drown me. And all of a sudden, he went like this, Gogo, boom, and knocked me right in the eye. I get it. I get it. When I was putting him underwater to swim, he thought I was drowning him. When I asked him to jump from the side and turn around, I was saving his life, but he thought I was about to kill him. He thought I was just making him suffer. But from my perspective, oh, from my perspective, his mom was right. Simeon, don't be afraid. Simeon, I'm in control. I got a plan. From the very beginning of our swim lessons to the end, my plan is not to drown you. My plan is to make you a great swimmer, Simeon. And let me tell you, he's swimming like a fish today. Now, go, go, you taught me how to swim. It's no longer go, go, it's go, go, right? He sees the point at the end. The point of tribulation from God's perspective, it's simply a test. Every teacher wants you to know the subject so they give you a test. Every swim instructor wants you to be able to swim so they give you tests. Christ, he wants you to look like him. So he provides these things in a way that only that he can so that you reflect who he is. Studying Malachi chapter 3, a young uh, Bible, college, Bible student Speaking of Jesus, that he's a silversmith, he decided to go to a silversmith to get some information about this, to understand what this means. And when he showed up to the silversmith, he looked and he saw the silversmith, he's sitting right over the pot. And he's heating it up. And he said to him, hey, how do you know how much to heat it? Silversmith said, oh, you can't heat it too much because you'll destroy the metal. You have to heat it just enough so that the impurities come out and then I scrape the impurities off. He said, oh, well, why do you sit so close to it? Why are you right there with it? He said, oh, I've got to be right here to monitor this fire because I can't let it go too hot and I can't let it go too cold. So the Bible student said to the silversmith, well, how do you know when it's completely pure? The silversmith just smiled and he looked at the student and he said, when I look into the pot, and I see my reflection, it's ready. You see, there's the goal of Christ, the silversmith. 
He wants to heat the fire just a little, just enough, because he knows. And he says, do not fear. I know what I'm doing. I know what it takes to get you there. And for this church, for them to get there, he says to them, you're going to suffer for 10 days. 10 days? Are you kidding me? Why can't it be like an hour? Why does it have to be 10 days? And if you're reading it from that perspective, that's the wrong perspective. Because let me tell you something. When they were in that Roman jail, on day three, you know what they were telling everybody in that jail? Gang, we only got seven days left. We can make it. Jesus said it'd be 10 days. We can do this. Hold on. They had a different perspective. And they knew they were about to die. Come on, Chet. This letter is getting worse and worse. Imagine being the pastor that had to tell them this. This letter is getting worse and worse. I mean, come on. This isn't happily ever after. We want Polycarp to be freed. We want Polycarp to be floating in, in front of everybody and everyone comes to Christ. Come on. That's the Orange County story. That's the one we want. The happily ever after. Oh, that's not how it ends. You see, if you have that perspective, it's still the wrong perspective. It's a perspective of fear. But remember what Jesus said, don't fear. Number three, I want you to write it down. He says right there in verse, uh, uh, excuse me, in verse 10, be faithful. I want you to write it down, have faith, because faith is the opposite of fear. Now, let me express what faith is. Faith is the ability to trust that when God said he's in control, no matter the chaos that surrounds me, I know he's in control. Faith. Faith says that Jesus knows exactly how to build my faith so that I can reflect him. He knows the heat that needs to be in my life, and he knows the coolness that needs to be in my life. He's right there, engaged, involved, and he's looking to see his reflection, and faith says, I believe that. I trust that. Have faith? Faith believes that though he was dead, he was alive. And because he is alive, he can offer eternal life. And what he calls eternal life here is the crown of life. You're going to be crowned with eternal life. You're going to be able to live forever with Jesus. Now, if you listen to this, he makes it clear that you're only going to be able to understand this perspective if you've got your spiritual ears on. Now just imagine Pastor Smyrna delivering this message for the first time. Imagine receiving it. Imagine me this week, Lord, help me be able to communicate the power of your perspective. You're going to need spiritual ears. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Because for us, poverty, poverty sounds heartbreaking. Look at those poor children in Malawi. And our heart breaks. Yet humility, humility exalts us as citizens of the kingdom. It's what we look like. For us, suffering, suffering sounds agonizing. Yet ask a gold medalist how much they care, how much they suffered as they're wearing the gold, the gold medallion. 
Ask a mom if she cares how much she suffered as she's holding that precious child. It's just a different perspective. So he said, to him who conquers. To him who conquers. Paul, when he was writing the church in Rome, speaking to this very situation, he says, we are more than conquerors. More than? Well, a conqueror is someone who goes into battle and has the immediate victory. It's a physical thing. It's a physical sight. It's a physical experience, and it happens. But more than a conqueror? More than a conqueror is spiritual. Though I don't see the victory, I trust my faith is the victory. Though I don't feel the victory, I'm more than a conqueror. I don't need to live in the victory. I know I already have it in Christ. More than a conqueror. So the beginning, I said, who wants to receive a letter like this? But now, from a spiritual perspective, from a God's eye point of view, we begin to see something that's not there. You begin to have a different perspective. Well, what's not there? Well, I want you to notice if you have spiritual perspective, there's no rebuke to this church. Nothing like in the first church, you've left your first love. There's no exhortation, there's no challenge, there's no chastisement. No, if you've got a spiritual perspective, you will see something that's not there. They're not challenged because persecution has purified them. And the fire of their tribulation, they're reflecting the face of Jesus and they just see life different. And Jesus recognizes that. I know what you're going through. You're poor, but you are rich. You got my perspective. 